Hey, Dame. Yo. Do you happen to have any idea who this episode is brought to you by? Oh, I think I have a clue. I think I know. <laughs> this episode of Ergo is brought to you by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. And if you know Ergo, we love independent and we love shit not being locked down. So <laughs> so go ahead and get Overcast for free on the App Store. Hey, this is Ergo. We're right back at it. We are back with part two here in our mentorship suite, talking with the brilliant and wonderful Keisho Scott. So if you're coming right in and you missed part one, take a pause. We want you to listen to this. We need those listens. Come back. (laughs) Don't get it twisted. (laughs) But go listen to part one. Get some of the themes that were laid out. We want y'all to be in continuity and we'll be right back here waiting for you. And for those who are ready for this, we're just going to hop right back in it with our mentor, freedom fighter, organizer, activist that's been doing this work through the decades in the streets and in the classroom and in community, Keisho Scott. Here we go. Levitate, 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 levitate. So I I think I I have a plan for us. Um, Okay. So I have one more like of these big history type questions based off what you just said, but I think it will begin to transition us into talking through and and remembering and unearthing some of our personal experiences. And there's some really important notes in my life in terms of how you showed up for me that I want to make sure we, we talk about or document. But I'm really moved by what just happened in, in talking about Huey. I knew you were referencing Huey just off some of the language. That was that was my name that came to me, and I thought Eldridge a second. Uh, but, but I had a feeling you were talking about the Panthers. And yeah, there's something really meta about, one, the way you named it and how that relates to where movement is now. And I think even some of the like subtext of this suite of, in being objective, I would say Huey Newton is one of the most brilliant thinkers that has ever walked this earth, right? Uh, And then then that counterbalances, and I was able to learn this on campus, you know, you you guided me to some of Elaine Brown's writing and other feminist histories of the Panthers and the abuse. Um, There is irreparable and irreconcilable damage um, and damage that he, as a, as a, a single person, but he's not the only person, right? I think he's a height of this, of damage, of harm, particularly from mass-presenting patriarchal occupying bodies. Um, mm-hmm. And that is still at the root of the, the one of the central contradictions and complexities that we are dealing with, of how do we engage, one, that our folks are showing up to these movements unhealed, really damaged, and internalizing generations and centuries of violence that then they inflict or perpetuate for their own dominance or in their own trauma against these notions of heightening contradictions, healing, holding everyone, nobody's disposable, right? Like based off some of our metrics now, right? Like Huey could almost be argued should be erased from the historical record based off like the mainstream liberal way that we respond to violence. But it feels like we need a deeper complexity. So I want to even go to what happened for you just in this conversation. There was a moment where you weren't going to say his name and identify him 
with this behavior that needs to be identified. And I think that's something that we still struggle with of one, we don't want to trigger the survivors. We don't want to unearth things that are unhealed, but also how do we name and talk about this complex dynamic of people who show up for to liberation passionately, but also have these really detrimental impacts um, that we can't skate past. And I think one of the things our gender, you named, we now have different expectations around accountability, even though we don't have like the skills and the processes to enact <laughs> that. Um, I would agree with but, that. But like one thing Daniel always says uh, that I appreciate <laughs> is like, be- you know, before the internet folds, like you could just do some fucked up somewhere and just go to a different town. <laughs> and Move a hundred miles over. down the road, pick a new name and have a different life. Yeah. <laughs> and, th- and that's much less possible now. So um, I-, I gave a lot of context in, in hoping to try to make it more concise. Um, what have you learned? What have you felt? What are your reflections telling you about how we deal with this contradiction? And we can specify it to how men show up to space, but it's I think it's wider than that. Uh, it's definitely wider than that. I'm glad you mirrored back for me why I may have hesitated about saying UEP Newton's name. Because I also am aware that the system uses those complexities and contradictions within us against us. I mean, there are FBI files galore about that the agent provocateurs presented that documented days and moments and events around the violence that happened in many movements, whether it's, you know, against apartheid in South Africa or the liberation of Guinea or or any of these things. So where there are human beings, there are going to be contradictions. I think that one of the things that I learned is that if I know my contradictions and I contextualize them first, then I'm in better control of how they get used by others. So that would be my advice to young people. Now, let me give a specific example. You know, I grew up in generational alcoholism, which means that my father beat the shit out of my mother. I grew up in domestic violence. I also grew up in all of the rules of not telling white folks anything because they're going to use that against you and police violence. I first saw a policeman kill someone at 11 years old. So all of these were my norms. And it would make sense that those norms would make me attuned to the voices that came out. Like I, I was at Malcolm X message to the grassroots. I was only nine years old. My grandfather took me to hear him speak and said, you know, that nigga's crazy, but listen to every word he said. <laughs> wow. So that's so deep. Just yeah, I don't that's mean to deep. interrupt because not only is that deep that, that you had the experience, but but Grace and Jimmy were the chair organizers of that conference where he spoke. And so just that Absolutely. full circle moment of 10 years later, you just ran into the woman. <laughs> she just asked you what you're learning. <laughs> now that's wow. synchronicity. Oh. You know, let me just tell you something. Synchronicity is one thing. When you finally want to know how mature you are is when you start realizing those synchronicities. But there is also serendipity. Your synchronicity is right when it's right for you. So for me, I now know that because Huey was not in charge of being able to talk about his needs, that he fashioned a movement to meet because he, like me, believed that if you create a movement for everyone, you'll benefit. 
Well, see, here's what we know now. You create a movement first and foremost for you to benefit because you wanted to heal you. So for an example, did I beat my children? I think I was abusive to my children. Yes. Before I began to realize that I didn't have to be. So I think that critical reflection piece that I was talking about is crucial. One needs to go back through their lived life and say, no matter where I learn this behavior, if I'm practicing it, it's mine now. Mm. (laughs) And I got to own it. And I need to contextualize that behavior in relationship to what I do, whether I'm a poor listener or whether I just slap that bitch, no matter what it is. I think you got to do both, right? I think you got to do both. Or every time that I have dismissed somebody because they were white or because they were male or because they were rich, you know, all of these have premises underneath them and they create a kind of violence because they erase people's real living experiences. So I think that that's a challenge for all of us. And it is hard stuff because it is what later people write about when they write your story. I mean, you all can write my story when I'm dead. That'll be fine. But you will have (laughs) a different level of knowing that story, not only because of this interview, but because the ongoing relationship that we had over the years that you'll be able to say, we know some of the paradoxes that Keisha lived with. We know some of the contradictions she was faced with. We know some of the complexities and ways that her activism was taking a stab at some of those. And you will have had that close proximity that mentorship and menteeship creates. And you will have come full circle from having levitated in your own life to do the things that you are doing. To me, if there's nothing else that's more valuable in this interview that I want young people to hear is that you cannot at some point avoid mentorship. Either you're going to get the kind that's going to make you on this side of humanity, or you're going to get the kind that's going to make you not on this side of the humanity, or you're going to have been offered it and you reject it yourself, mm. right? And that one is the worst because that's the one that makes you consciously unwilling to grow. So when I think back at Huey P. Newton, this is a young man that had a PhD by the time he was 25 years old, that he was organizing in the South. And you wrote a paper about this. <laughs> I remember this. <laughs> but I mean, he was organizing in the South for voters registration. I mean, my God, can you remember a time when we thought just getting people the right to vote and letting them sign up to vote was revolutionary? Well, I lived through those years when we rejected that shit. I joined all those radical organizations because I wasn't having voting as the only solution. Fast forward to what did Abrams do? She registered 870. Oh, Stacey, yeah. Stacey, I'm sorry, Abrams. What what did she do? Her and 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 uh, Fight First, they organized people to register to vote so they can make a huge difference in Georgia. So we live to see that what is a contradiction in one time turns into a contradiction and maybe a strength in another time because critical reflection helps you become aware of what are your values, what are your beliefs, and what are your behaviors. So UEP Newton, when I think of him and others, I don't want to contextualize violence or immaturity or unkindness or or any of these wrong motions as just having one gender. They did not. I saw egomaniacs that, you know, had vaginas too. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm just saying, I saw all of that. And I was also some of that until somebody walked up to me and gave me an opportunity to be elevated from their experience and their expertise in conscious or unconscious mentoring. And I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to have had the people that I've had. Mm. To that, not just luck, but the willingness and openness to it. You talked about, you know, the worst version being the rejection of that offer and, and that uh, willful unwillingness to engage and to entrench for that reason. In, in the role you had at Grinnell, I'm sure there were some times where you put the offer out and uh, there was some retrenchment that you received back. Um, oh, yeah. Or some co-optation. For example... I knew colleagues for years who never even spoke to me because they drank the Kool-Aid that she was crazy and uh, don't talk to her. And and she's, you know, maybe not really one of them, a scholar or whatever they perceive themselves. Why, do, why have you played that up a little bit? I feel like you wear that on your sleeve of like, I'm crazy and I'm not one of y'all. Well, I'm, I'm just saying that. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying that. No, no, no. I, I think that that I think that 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 is a, a space on the margin that worked for me because it kept a number of people away. But I think it's also a space in which sometimes I was very lonely in. And sometimes in that loneliness, I felt doubt. I would also say that one of the things I learned from Audrey and Jimmy and, and, and Grace and some of those people is always have layers of mentors close to you and away from where your site of activism is, because you got to get multiple perspectives of what you do. But I want to go back to my example. I think this particular colleague of mine, I did something in the community that they thought was heroic. And I know it was heroic. They thought it was. I know it was heroic. Right after <laughs> George Floyd was murdered, I asked a church to put up a sign. I call, I text 200 people in my community to meet me at noon the next day and us to get on our knee and do a, a memorial for George Floyd and later Breonna Taylor and whoever they had understood it died. And 150 people showed up the next day. And then successively, I've gone to seven other communities, small town communities in Iowa. And this person, who is a colleague, never had a real conversation with me, had a, oh, my gosh, Keisho is amazing experience. And then instead of calling me and telling me this, which would have been an organic, honest, real conversation, they send me a, a text identifying that they have put some money up in a scholarship in my name at the institution. And I had to think about that. Why did they commodify what they thought I was doing through money? Mm. Why didn't they just humanize what I did through our relationship? I would have enjoyed a conversation with this person because it's not that I did not think that things I had learned about them, I did not have some awe experience and thought were good. But it's that old habit of being so afraid of having real connections with people <laughs> that unfortunately we have in, in our culture that when we think we don't know the histories that in every society and every family there were heroes, when we don't know the history of diversity in America, of those 149 people of color in this country, million, 
when you don't know that story and you don't know your own story in white privilege, then you only can be reduced to commodifying what you think is fantastic. And what a loss for both of us. So I proceeded to have that conversation with this colleague. I thank them for starting a scholarship in my name. Wonderful. But I also, it's that conversation we had in the coffee shop later in which I saw tears in their eyes because we both got to talk about our alcoholic fathers, how that made us teachers, how we ended up in a small town teaching in in Iowa and so forth. And that is more valuable than money to me. That is an elevation to both of us. And I'm glad that we could do that. Yeah. Whew. So that that leads right into where I wanted to go. I'm, I'm taking some of these threads. So this notion of human relation filtered through this vulnerability and, and this like transparency around some of these complexities and contradictions that we're holding and working through, you know, that dynamic happening in this very unexpected site, <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the middle, like if you threw a dart to a bullseye of the map of Iowa, right? Like Grinnell Town and Grinnell College is like literally smack dab in the middle. And I did not realize it probably until my last few weeks there explicitly. Like I knew who you were, obviously, uh, but it wasn't until coming through the process that I recognized you turned this really unexpected site into a space of movement building that, you know, has obviously shaped and guided and and changed my life. So I want to go to one moment where our relationship really was grounded and starting where where I started to see you as a human being, but also you showed up as a life raft for me. Um, and so, you know, my experience at Grinnell to this day, I still try to work through it, right? It was really tough and I did not enjoy it almost at all, <laughs> even though <laughs> I've obviously like almost one, there's like barely a day that I enjoy, even though I still, to the contradictions and the dialectics of it, right? I, I've obviously still benefited from it so much, right? We're having this conversation t- almost 10 years later after the day we, we enter campus. Um, so I took three courses with you. I took a, a race and ethnicity course, which we, we talked about critical race theory. Um, I took a global feminisms course, which was basically, you know, feminist social movements. And then I took a social movements course and you became my advisor. I met you. It was one of those grace type moments. I met you in my intro sociology class. I had some like visiting professor and I think you were like the head of the, the department or whatever at the time. And so you had to like come check and like, you could help yourself. You you didn't just like observe and take notes. You like participated in the class and were like answering questions. <laughs> and we just like watched some commercial. And you just like analyzed all the social themes of it. And I was like, that, that is how I want to talk. That's how I want to think in the world. That's how I want to be critical. That's how I want to make intervention. So the next year I'm in your course, you're this figure to me. You're this panther. You're this black woman that don't give a shit. You're running your classes all over the place. I'm struggling as a student, but trying harder than I ever had. Um, but my like intellect is not enough to like move me through this space. And so this point of, of vulnerability. So I'm in your course. My final paper is in this race and ethnicity course is on real nigga identity in hip hop. I was so excited about this concept, but it, I was struggling to go through like the steps of like draft one, draft two. And so first semester, second year of college, all of these things converged on me within about a month, a month and a half. My high school girlfriend, we broke up. That's like expected. That's what happens to everybody. Uh, but that was tough. <laughs> um, but then I got arrested in my dorm room f- for for marijuana, you know, going from being this golden boy who had quit basketball to now I'm, you know, I'm in the air quote system. 
A week later, Halloween weekend, there was a ring of robberies on campus. And me and my Black friend, who didn't have on costumes and were like very publicly out, um, multiple people accused us of breaking in dorm rooms and stealing their electronics. So in the middle of the night, the week after I got arrested, the police came into my room and a bunch of like baseball players like aided the police in like searching and, and raiding my room. And there was a, r- a rumor going around that I was this thief. And then I got into a car accident and totaled my car. Uh, you know, and this is on top of like these parties suck and like these people are really weird <laughs> and I don't enjoy this food. I got nowhere to get my hair cut. <laughs> but all these really intense things started happening. And so I was coming to, you know, to your office hours. That was a sign to talk about this paper that I was behind on. And there was something about just your real humanity. You saw me start to get emotional and you said, go close the door. And then I just started breaking down crying. And I was trying to explain all these things, trying to talk about getting arrested. It's like, now I'm afraid to smoke weed, which relaxes me because <laughs> <laughs> yes. I just got arrested for smoking weed. Um, and you told me you brought the personal to the structural. You said, you know what? You're not alone in this. I've actually been wanting to write a book. For the last 20 years, Black men have been coming to this campus. And the way that you're sitting right now, I've been seeing for generations. And just knowing, right, that my experience wasn't an individual failure (laughs) or me not being able to cope with, you know, my whole life I was groomed to go to college and come home and be the hero. And it felt like I was failing. And you, in a very human moment, did not care about my paper but you use the theory of race, <laughs> of social structure, <laughs> of institution to explain what I was like, what I was going through, to explain my depression in real time. And that just opened me up in ways of one, resilience of like, oh, this is something bigger than me. So let me go through it. Uh, but also it allowed me to stop seeing my thinking through this notion of failure and like also do the work better. Um, and so, yeah, that one moment you weren't my mentor at the time, right? Like you weren't my advisor. You were just this tenured, established professor that I really wanted to do well in your class more than I cared about any other class. And you let me be human in ways that started a relationship of how important you were to me. So, I, you know, that was one of like the lowest points and I didn't have the vocabulary yet. Um, and you started to give me some vocabulary and it wasn't about what marks or Weber said or something, right? <laughs> uh, it was about me and my experience and the space that I was in. Um, so just thank you so much for that moment. Um, You're welcome. So yeah, I'll, I'll open it to. I don't know if you have if you have memory or response to that, or if Dan, you. Have uh, I I, I absolutely I do. I have memories of those. I didn't have shut the door experiences with all the students. Only the students that I gleaned for whatever reason, trusting my gut, they needed something different. And you were one of those students. I remember you you listing off, I think there were a couple of other things that were happening in that. Oh, and I was failing all my classes. <laughs> yeah, I remember that shit too. And and I, I and I, something else too. But anyway, what, what I remember, I also think that you were being institutionally ganged up on because there is a process at Grinnell when a student has fallen down the rabbit hole People all get involved in it in a way that it just helps them help the fall. And I was seeing that. But anyway, yeah, I remember that day. I remember the door shutting. I remember the tears formulating in your eye and this kind of, oh, my gosh, you know, it isn't all about me. And it's almost like you took another breath 
And you don't think somebody didn't do that for me when I was ready to beat myself up for what they say? Mm-hmm. Are you mm-hmm. kidding me? Mm-hmm. I mean, I had more years of preparing to beat myself up than moments where I had to build myself up and know how to do that. So my equivalent story would be very similar. I was in graduate school flunking like shit in graduate school in terms of paper writing. I wasn't very good at it. And my professor, Lynn Lewis, she came over to my dorm and said, don't turn any more shit like this into me and scared me to death. But what she says is, until you check it with me first. And I started weeping because just to have somebody understand me is is revolutionary. And I'm sure that's what you needed at that time. You needed to be understood, not only heard, but understood. And I could do that. I could stand in your outside of your experience and mirror back for you what you needed to remember that you didn't create all of this. You are being impacted by this. And even though you may have played a role in some of it, you aren't responsible for fixing it all. Mm-hmm. You're responsible for your part. And Grinnell, as brilliant as you young people are, it doesn't give you a lot of rewards for pushing back. That's what I did. I gave students rewards for pushing the fuck back. Because if you don't practice that in the safest place you're in, which is college, you're not necessarily going to practice it out there when you could lose your life. Mm, thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I remember. <laughs> oh, of course I remember. And I remember when you came back to Grinnell, you were invited back and you and I did that presentation together where you were talking about sort of how do you take these early components of social movements and how are they showing up in the Black Lives Matter grassroots organization? Or why did this organization merge? How the hell is it effective? Blah, 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 blah. You were powerful. And thank you. Thank you. That that, that <laughs> return trip was really like, it was very full circle for like feeling the lowest to like the whole campus. Like, oh, wow. You know, cheer me on. Look at this guy. Um, professors that didn't care. Be like, oh, wow. You know, being all like. Back know. then they didn't yeah. want me now. Yeah. Now, they, now they want to claim you. They want to uh-huh. claim uh-huh. Well, he was my student. Now, now, now they're going to start a scholarship, you know. But I was modeling what you had built. It, you know, I remember it wasn't just like, oh, let me remember. I remember being in your class and you generally and also specifically making the point of like, y'all are going to be the ones that come back and do these presentations. Yes. So I remember every time somebody would come into class, even though I didn't know where I was going to be in the world and still didn't have like a sense of organizing in any sense. I had a sense that I was going to be doing something that I needed to come back with. Um, you created the learning to, to in, engage the information on the front end to be prepared to put it in practice and come back and teach it. Uh, yes. Just in the last two weeks, just to shout you out some more, and I'm going to let Kiss jump in there. Um, <laughs> so just to give you credit. So I did a, a workshop this Saturday at this space that's partnered with our organization uh, on anti-oppression. And I organized it based on our curriculum of the race and ethnicity course within the concepts of oppression, privilege, and resistance and how to- There it is. There it is. I remember. I remember the book. And then to that notion of being prepared to teach while learning as part of this mentorship, levitation, critical reflection tradition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, The book, and I'm going to talk about it later, I told you before, Revolution and Evolution changed my life. I call it my movement Bible. It is very much a spiritual text for me. I've engaged it over a dozen times now. 
Um, and just two weeks ago, we had the, one, one of the last sessions with it. Me and Barbara Ransby's daughter, Asha Ransby Sporn, I've uh, been facilitating a radical reading group with folks from movement across the country in a few different cities. And we started with that text. And so I was teaching the text that you taught me just last week, um, to, just to the point of like, it has never left, like on a weekly and monthly basis. And actually, that's a, I'm going to throw it to kiss on this. This was a big part of when our partnership and friendship started because we weren't like, we were cool, but we weren't like super close or like working mm -hmm. partners on campus. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he was connected to a, a space that we were both engaging and was doing a presentation on some of our initial work in Ferguson. And he was there and he came up to me and he's like, I hear K-Show. And as soon as he said <laughs> that, I'm like, oh yeah, you get it. <laughs> like, it. We're, we're in it. And so from that point on, that was not the first, but one of the like real first moments of even our understanding of of building this partnership in this space that, that Ergo has levitated from. So it, yeah, was, it was honestly like such a relief to have someone else thinking the way that I was trying to think like it was one the joy of like oh this is so great but it was also like there had been this scarcity or this empty space of like this approach and you know it was once you went we have to connect the whole to the particular I was like yes. All right, I'm, we're back home <laughs> which for those listening at home K-Show is the royalty of the hand movement and the design, the design, the new hand movement to, to as a form of like pedagogy. Um, and then so seeing that, <laughs> seeing Dame do that, and it was this like not only do we have this common experience because there are a lot of other people who we went to college with who were still around in my sphere at that time, but there's this common, and it's not even just ideology. It's this, this common approach to trying to understand, Texas. right? And I was so like hungry for it after walking away and that was because like i had seen and felt the joy of that levitation on a pretty continual basis to some of our conversation about what does it mean to step away or for those relationships to transition you know i was in your office if not uh, weekly close to it we had a lot of open door and closed door conversations and, and to the point that you know it really moved into that next stage of relationship where I was learning about you and I was learning about the tensions and pains and struggles that you were having and learning how also, you know, in a way that was really different from a teacher student relationship to make space for that, which really challenged my listening and challenged my patience in all that as well. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there's so much that I, that I took, but I think the thing that has been so impactful for me is as that relationship has changed, the ways that even if I'm not in the closed door room every week, I know that it can be there when I need it. And there have been probably four or five times in the last seven years where I've needed it and I've turned to you and you've been there in ways that are not to tell me what I want to hear or not to give me answers, but to create some of that facilitated space of like, it's a combination of like being seen, heard, but then also that you're not alone in this feeling. So, you know, one of it was six months after we graduated and I'd moved to Chicago and the project that I moved here for wasn't happening. And I was really frustrated and didn't know what I was doing and had a lot of pressure put on myself you, you you heard me through all the things that I was, that my anxious brain, the hamster wheels I'd created. And you said, trust your instincts and do the next right thing. And I've told that to so many people and tell it to myself so often. So that was one. 
And then uh, there was a post uh, Freedom Square, so post 2016 conversation around how do I understand my relationship to movement that you helped me really talk through. And then the most recent was, oh my God. Um, So this past summer, the night that Damon was assaulted by the cops and then arrested. Oh, I remember this. I remember this one. And I didn't know who to, um, who to call. And Mm. so I called you. (laughs) Um, Oh, I remember this. Very real. So yeah, what I I need a second to catch myself, but what do you remember about that conversation? Oh, I remember that conversation (sighs) very well because one of the things that you were perplexed with is whether you should get up and go do something that was going to be harmful to you and to your safety in order to demonstrate, and of course, to whom that you were committed and that, that you were prepared to go and have yourself be in harm's way. But what was the fucking point of that? <laughs> you know, right. to, what, was Damien going to be any safer having his ass beat by police? Was he going to get out of jail any sooner? Was any money going to be mobilized? And I think that we are each challenged, and you were at that time, on what should I do? And who will be the judger of what I do? And what was beautiful is you made the decision to what I would now add is something a little bit different. I would say, do the next right loving thing. Mm. And sometimes that loving thing adds a dimension to, if you're going to do something that's only going to show love for someone else and not love for yourself, it's not going to be effective. Mm. And I remember you were agonizing, you know, (laughs) you, you, you just agonizing on, on this and you, um, I mean, you were turning all kind of colors, I'm sure. And, <laughs> and this was an insane hour of the night and it would yeah. it would not have made a difference. So your willingness was the thing that was something you had to look at. Like, what were you willing to do? And then was that the next right loving thing to do for him or for you or the movement? And so the issue of accountability, we use this word now, but I don't think we talk like that then. But everybody's talking about, you know, whatever you're responsible for, you're accountable to now. And I think that you are putting together what that what would be like. What, what am I accountable to? And your relationship is deep enough with him to know, and maybe this was tested in your mind, that you all were going to be able to have a conversation. The other thing is, after practicing whiteness, you know damn well that one of the things that gets thrown at, at white people all the time is, are y'all going to really show up when the shit really means something? And you know the historical record of this. You know that people of color, particularly African-Americans, internalize this idea that we're always on our own. we always on our own. When in fact, we know that ain't true. <laughs> it's never been true. <laughs> it's never been true. But we, we want to we promote that when somebody fails us, quote, at the personal level. And I think you were grappling with that. And you did it brilliantly. You called somebody who would not just kiss your ass and say what you wanted to hear. <laughs> you, you also call someone who let you sit in those very uncomfortable feelings. And I was honored that night. (sighs) And by the way, I learned to do that. It's one thing to say you should have, could have done it, but it's another to be able to talk from that place of having done it and why it's an important tool to do. You get to teach that to other young people now. Yeah. What a, what a meaningful 
role and responsibility to step into. I mean, that's been the whole point of this, trying to learn how do we start to think about doing that. Um, but yeah, I, I said it to you then and I'll say it to you now, but yeah, thank you for answering the phone and choosing to all these times. And I don't take that for granted at all. It's not to our earlier conversation. It's not a job, <laughs> right? There's no external demand of that. I'm just so grateful you do. Thank you so much. Yeah, I want to offer gratitude and thanks to, to both of y'all too. Um, because, you know, once once Daniel told me he called you, um, I very much felt like a part of that conversation, right? Like, um, <laughs> like that's kind of the yin and our yang is like, he's really great at co- <laughs> reaching out we, and corresponding. We would have conferenced you in if we could have. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I felt held and, and, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful for what you were able to provide for him in, the, in that time um, and how that showed up to how I'm grateful to him and what he was able to provide for me and for us in a you know elongated way. So I, I thanked him a lot off air. Uh, but in that time, right, and to give some of the context due to different, you know, immunocompromisation, we, we forget we were in the middle of the pandemic during that, right? Absolutely. And so pe- people are coming outside with different risk levels. And so I, I remember kids really struggling with that and, 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 you know, really being present, you know, once I got out. But the way for like the weeks following that, the way that he was able to support all that came my way, the ways that he, the show and keeping, you know, the show in tune, but also reshaping it to respond to what had just happened, created a healing space. Um, and we were able to like, not just like wallow in the wounds, um, the way that kissed the way you showed up and the way that you supported him show, we were able to amplify and grow movement. We were able to levitate <laughs> um, in that time. And, I, you know, I was obviously <laughs> dealing with some shit and overwhelmed. Uh, and, and you know, through Ergo, through Let Us Breathe, and then just interpersonally, um, you know, the way the way you showed up for me, bro, was, was, was you know, I'm internally grateful. Uh, but Keisha, I'm, I'm grateful for you uh, for being a person to call and 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 setting that foundation for him to even ask the right questions um, because it, it showed up materially and immaterially. And so this is- And has so many times, you know, <laughs> wow. for both of us throughout the yeah. years. I mean, I think that's a great way to say it, Dame, knowing what questions to ask. It's not about having the right answer. It's about knowing what questions to ask to then figure out how do we move forward. Well, I think that every instrument of oppression has always been about taking away people's ability to ask the question and taking away the side instruments, the drum, the music, the painting, taking away everything that keeps people from putting what's in their imagination out for others to see. And when one does not allow that in their life anymore, that no one's going to take my humanity away from me. One of the greatest books I ever read in my life, and I read continuously is Man's Search for Meaning. And I read that book over and over because one of the things he says in that book, being a doctor, being forced to take care of Nazis in a prison camp, he says that you can always take away my freedom, but you can never take away my liberty. Yes, we can stop you from moving out of this space, but you can never take away someone's imagination. And I think when I got to that point, or when I watch people have that kaleidoscopic experience where their own critical reflection turns their world in a way in which they never go back, when I see that happens, it's almost like a spiritual halo 
goes over them and I know they're going to be all right. That is the desire of every person who is a mentor, that somebody's going to get some example of what you have brought to that teaching experience. And in me in particular, having come to an all white space to teach, an extremely privileged place to have a chance to teach, I made a choice. Remember, Daniel, when I asked you once, do you want influence or do you want power? This is another one of them goddamn Grace Lee Ball questions she asked me one time. And I, and of course I said power. And she said, okay, well, let's play that out. And I remember after she talked to me about that, I said, no, I don't. I want influence. Now that I understand the implications for power, because when you have power, you have to use it. And it is physical and it is intellectual. And I really wanted influence. And I have lived a life of service to influence. And I think that has a bad rap in our society because we think of taking over shit as the only way to have influence. You know, when you influence people's hearts and minds, then you give it a reason for beating. You give it a reason for thinking. And that is something that's intangible, something that's invaluable, something that an A plus has not a goddamn thing to do with. You know, it has, it's a message bigger than mommy and daddy. And that actually is what you all do with your work as cultural entrepreneurs, as people that are taking back what the cultural expression is and bringing it back to the inventor. That is the person that's doing it. You know, when Daniel used to tell me about his dreams in the beginning, I used to say, what the fuck is he talking? I, I couldn't understand. <laughs> what, did I, what did I say? You, you used to, well, you used to say, you know, I'm doing a radio show and we're, and I'm collecting all these artists and blah, blah. And I used to say, for what? <laughs> I, I could not grasp. <laughs> Honestly, this is why I know I, I learned from the young people. And then one day you said to me in one of these conversations, you said, and people can go back and reference that to where they're at now. And it just clicked for me that you were creating a body of work very different than my generation where we wrote books. You understand what I'm saying? But you were creating a body of work that we could go reference to. And then you start sending me shit in the mail and articles and things that I read. I don't have a clue what some of this shit is, but, but, but it start <laughs> the dots start connecting and I start realizing, yeah, the spoken word is history. I didn't get that. And I just thank you for dragging me kicking and screaming into your space <laughs> and to your moment, because I did come in kicking and screaming and I'm, and I stand there sometime like a deer in headlight. What am I supposed to see here? But you all don't let me down by keep doing what you're doing. And that's why any successful social movement is intergenerational. It has to be. It has to be both ways. And that is certainly what Black Lives Matter as the largest social movement in human history has proven. 28 million people, 67 countries, every state in the United States. And on June 1st, 554 protests happening simultaneously in the United States. This has changed the world. And just two and a half months ago in the Soviet Union, while they were arresting a thousand people a day, they were raising their hands and following the model of Black Lives Matter and saying Russian lives matter. So let me tell you, we don't need acknowledgement from them anymore. We have to do the next right loving thing that we know we learned from those people that mentored us at the right time. That's who we're accountable to, those people that mentored us. 
not those people that oppress us. <laughs> wow. And which, wow. So often we, we do frame it as that. Talk about influence, right? Like, I mean, that global influence that you just talked about that I want you to also take credit for and helping to, you you know, you contribute. Oh, yeah, you've done this shit all over the world. <laughs> um, yes, I have. But just a little note for the listeners, because that was an important lesson, but I don't want any confusion. Just to let you know, nine times out of 10, if you're calling yourself an influencer, you don't actually have real influence. <laughs> so I don't know if that, yeah. if that term has come to your way, but in the lexicon of like the Twitter, Instagram generation. Yeah, or it's commodified. Yeah. You know, <laughs> oh, it's yes. a sell product, right? Right. So I, I want to, uh, my, my last like big memory question is there's this narrative to, you know, when I get interviewed for things, when I teach about movement, when I'm talking about my last year in, in school and then how that shaped this unexpected entry into movement. Cause I didn't come into campus as like a student activist. I didn't do like, you know, no, I love all the people that was in it. But like when I saw like the NAACP and concerned black students and all that, it felt like extracurricular, like Jack and Jill put on your like resume type of stuff. It didn't speak to me yes. in any type of way, but. The, and I'm going to use the, the, I'm going to use the bathroom and I'll be right Okay, back. for you sure. Keep for sure. I could go through this. I don't need you, <laughs> but I love you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also my, my, that same class where I came, you cried and we shut the door and I was getting prepared to fail that final. We'll get to this story. <laughs> the first protest that I ever really experienced were the students in our class protesting the notion of a final exam. Oh, God, yes. That medium or that form of evaluation was in such contradiction with what you had taught us. And so we used, we made a collective project where on the day of the exam, I think we were all wearing black and you came in and then we stood to the front of the room and did like a two hour collective presentation where we used all of the theory of the class to invalidate the notion of this final exam that we were about to take. So I, I want to go back to that memory first. I know that moved you a lot. Oh my God, to, that to, moved to, me. To I, I just, I, you can go to my talk or I'll link, I'll send it to you after this in which I tell alums that one of the highlights of my teaching was to have my students reject the test and create their own and how that was an incredible application of what you learned. And there was clearly no way I could have ever measured what you learned. You all did the very thing that every teacher wants young students to do, and that's to take the fuck over. And I love it. <laughs> I, you all made me sit down and wear a sign I remember called, listen. <laughs> and that challenged me. <laughs> it was yep, great. Yep. I'm saying you taught us about oppression and like this system is a replication of oppression and we're going to model our learning through this act of resistance. Yes. So that was big for me, but that still felt very like schooly, right? It felt like, and I was just so glad because I was one of the younger students in the class. I was like, I was going to fail the fuck out of that exam. So I was just so glad that like older students took the courage to like, you know, make sure we take that step. Um, but but I want to go kind of from that seed to my last year um, because I did not come into campus or even leave campus seeing myself as, you know, dedicating my life to liberation movement. Um, but I did really want to internalize the notions of liberation. I was concerned for Black people and I thought I was going to, I had to go through the system, accumulate power so that when I got to be your age, I can apply these things. Um, but you prepared me for the world. And I want to talk about 
one, you know, I can use myself as an emblem, but this notion of preparing people for things that they don't even see themselves striving towards. So like I said, my, 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 my fourth year, my senior year, I took your global feminism seminar. Mm -hmm. I was the only male identified cis man in the, in the class. And I was the only black American (laughs) in the class. I did my final paper on black power women. So to the point Mm -hmm. of like, we talked to Angela, I studied Angela, Elaine Brown, Kathleen Cleaver. Um, And then the next semester, after that grounding of one, understanding movement is global, understanding patriarchy as a global dynamic, and that actually the global South has been way ahead of these Western white women and these Western bourgeois of all women uh, that we center when we think of feminism. Oh, man. Oh, damn. I'm doing, t- I'm doing too much. I'm just going down every lane. We did that um, that patriarchy thing where we like did this whole yeah it wasn't with the oh that or, that old patriarchy thing <laughs> <laughs> no it was it was great like like i was just setting the table kiss i was the only cis man in the class only black american and the class wanted to take the learnings of the class beyond the class um so we did this like seminar teaching campus for the whole production. campus for and and then we did like videos with the camp of asking faculty and students what their definition of patriarchy is and how patriarchy shows up in our space and how we have to be in resistance to it. And that was obviously <laughs> super formative to me. I forget about that exercise sometimes. And then from there, went into a broader social movements course where I was able to study the contradictions or I, I asked it basically of like the failures of the Black Power movement. Why did it not continue? Why is that legacy gone? Um, And that was in a point of like 20, 25 years of at least popular void in Black radical liberation movement. So then that summer, reread Revolution Evolution, created a stage show with my sister, trying to like code these revolutionary ideas into like cute sibling-y, like, you know, raps and poems, talking about our mom, but trying to talk about the intersection of race, gender, and class. And, And we get on the cover of a newspaper about it. And then a month later, Mike Brown is killed and then uprising happens. And so came from this year of study of social movement and of the difference between rebellion, revolt and revolution, tried to apply it artistically. And then what I thought wouldn't happen for another 50 years happened six weeks later and was compelled to show up. And I saw the page. I saw the theory, things that, that we had just talked about months before. I saw on the ground having real conversations with with Crips from St. Louis about revolution. And I was able to do like teachers about Malcolm X and Motel and like all of this. I didn't see myself as an activist yet. I didn't even know the word organizer. We just called them paid protester. But this preparation and this levitation process that you have been pouring into me uh, made me ready to respond to something I did not know that I needed to be doing. And so using that story, I don't want you just to talk about me, but like from your perspective, that process of of levitating people, because I'm sure you taught uh, other people the thing. Other people were in that class, right? (laughs) And everybody wasn't going to be teaching about revolution six months later. Yeah. How do you prepare people for things that they don't even expect of themselves? Which is different. I'm sorry to, to be long winded, but it's different from that institutional notion of mentorship where you talked about where it's like, come help me succeed in this in this profession right like come help me i want to get more money i want to get more accreditation i need your access and your power and your privilege to guide me along this like pre-set out path that i'm trying to raise up through well clearly we know that 
predominantly white institutions had to hire more faculty of color, although people of color are only about 2% of the faculty in colleges and universities in the United States in particular, but they had to hire some. But often we feel like our experience is pimped. And that means that we don't have to not share it, but we have to figure out to be discerning with who are we going to uh, share it with and, and what levels. And that's been a scary proposition. Um, and I will tell you, frankly, until I got my fuck you papers, and I call them <laughs> tenure papers, I, uh, I was a cautious because mm. I could lose the livelihood that I went to school for and that I had to, a, a job that paid my bills to take care of my children. But once I got the fuck you paper, I began to become more, you know, maybe I dropped bombs where bombs weren't used to being dropped. Let's say it like that. And I, I didn't feel responsible for where they fell and how they fell out initially. But eventually, I also began to realize that if I was going to do that bomb dropping and offer no alternatives, then I wasn't doing the next right loving thing. I was just doing the right thing with, with no umbrella. And so that changed the way I taught classes that changed, you know, from content centered to lived experience and practice. I wanted students to walk away with some experience that they had collectively that wasn't about Keisho and some measure that I had, but some experience that they were forced to have while they were in the class together. And that proved to be right. So you're right. I guerrilla taught. That's what I call my teaching, guerrilla teaching. But it's for the students to have an experience. So I fast forward to you and the question that you're asking about, is that intentional on my part? Yes. Do I think that everybody gets it at a similar rate? No. I think seeds are planted. The button is pushed for the ones that need to be pushed for you in class or they get pushed at some other time. But it is true that you don't leave a class, at least that I teach, without having have had an experience. That's what students have told me. In the same way that I didn't leave movements I was involved in and not have been altered. How I was altered is what I do with what I've learned. And that's what the connection between being levitated in mentorship to realizing that you can levitate others by what you share. And that takes courage to say what isn't being said. Um, and to what Shanna said last week, she used courage and vocabulary. You needs both. Yeah. Absolutely. You have to have vocabulary. That vocabulary, you know, I, I want to say three quick things that <laughs> I, it's important for me to put on this tape. And that is that Grace Lee Boggs got a PhD in philosophy from Bryn Mawr, and she was the top student in the 1940s, never taught in an academic environment. She was a secretary for a law firm her entire years, for 55 years that she was in the movements, because she didn't want her job to inhibit her ability to, to do activism anywhere in the world. And her boss let her do whatever she did. But, but what's important Shout out to is that, that boss. I, <laughs> yeah. right, right. But, but one of the things I don't forget is that she was trained classically 
in the role of philosophy to ask what are the questions that are being asked. And she used to teach us in this underground revolutionary organization that we were in from that standpoint of what are the questions. And what I remember the most and what I hear young people saying today in not having the vocabulary or when they have the vocabulary is how goddamn scared they are to ask that question. They're just scared because guess what? They got to be able to answer that question, not just pose that question, but they got to answer it too. So that's one thing. Then my other PhD was Jimmy Boggs, who had a 10th grade education and worked in a factory till he retired. So he never had a formal education, but he got his ass beat. He got arrested. He fought for the labor movement. He fought for the on the assembly line. He later went to Ghana and was part of the African liberation movement, supporting Kwame Nkrumah and a, lots of other things. I could just, I traveled in the South with him when we did all kinds of things. And Jimmy kept it simple. He had some goddamn common sense. And that is where academia erases one's common sense. <laughs> you get that shit from your family. Common sense. That's partially survival, partially innovation, and partially applying. You know, you cannot learn something unless you do it. And then you can talk about what you learned and how you practice it. I think that's something that I got from Jimmy. Do it. And then tell me what it was like after you do it. And I I think that goes to the heart of why I had the confidence that if I created an environment where students, I'm using the word levitate now, but I think in my mind, I was thinking that they have to have a common experience, then they would begin to operate in a way where the common welfare of each other had to come before their own individual desire. And they stopped putting the damn focus on whether they got an A or B, but they put the focus on what they had experienced with each other. And by the way, over the years, students have written me 10, 15, 20 years later. I mean, some of these students now are 53 years old, still writing me and checking in. And they're saying, very much like what you did, I meet somebody that has that vocabulary, has that common experience, and I'm, I can, I'm seeing my decisions on the right side of humanity. And that is very important to me. So I didn't want to turn people into activists, but I wanted to turn people for them to see their own role in their own education. That was what was important to me. You will see your own role in your education, that you are the subject of your education or what the fuck is the education for? <laughs> yeah. You know, what is it for if you're not the subject of it? And I think that I was luckily enough to be at an institution who had a larger conviction to what we now call the social justice agenda. They called it social gospel when you took that course on J.B. Grinnell and <laughs> propounded that stuff. But I think what's beautiful is the institution had already made those kind of convictions. I just think Keisha pushed the envelope to the max. And I was absolutely rewarded for that, not from the institutional acknowledgments. And certainly I've gotten dozens and dozens of those. But the fact that I touched hearts and minds and Grace and Jimmy taught me that my mentors taught me that my mentors, the ones who were alive and the ones that weren't. I mean, why was the first thing I heard at nine years old message to the grassroots? That was a message to people who were never going to move up in the system, but they made the system. They financed the system. They built the wealth 
of the system. And that message today, when I listen again, it changes me every time that I remember that Malcolm said, give a message to the grassroots. And I'm not outside of that. I am still part of that. And that's what I think mentoring is about, that it's remembering we move around in all of those roles, but we are still part of the grassroots. That's humanity. And that's the most important message, as well as the fact that you can levitate (laughs) even though you're not there yet. So you all have moved me. Thank you for asking (laughs) me to do this. I think the next right loving thing is to probably wrap up. Um, I I have one quick thing, unless you have, if we we can stop if, 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 if time no, I, a have, quick thing, I no. have time. I have time. All right. But I'm but just, we are, I I'm know more... we're running long, but, 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 this, <laughs> but this is more for fun. Uh, so, I, and I, I always want to be sensitive to it, but but it gives me some, so much joy or a tickle. <laughs> um, there was some, it was documented, but also some folklore just about like you as a person that I think made you attract, right? Like part of like, oh, I got to make sure I get some K-show classes. Just about like the spectrum of how you don't take shit. <laughs> oh, that I'm a bitch. I'm a bitch too. I'm a hard grader and so much work in her class. And th- th- yeah, there's a, a little I'm, bit of that. I'm a castrator. The men got together and said I castrated them in the class. I was oh. very angry. That about would have been that. an in- an interesting interesting lesson plan. <laughs> I did. I didn't, feel that. I didn't hear that, but yeah. <laughs> but but th- there was this notion of like, so one there was this Oprah story about you said all this letter to all these white people in this white town. Oh yeah. Uh, and then it's I think true. that. I don't know if you fan this flame or if, but then there was like more like urban legend about like K show back in the day was really with the shit or like the, the armed resistance. And like, she put in some work. <laughs> well, it is true. It is true that I ended up on Oprah's show and I took over cause she wasn't talking really straight. And, and, and her producer later said, we can never let this happen again, that this woman literally hijacked the show. I wasn't even the guest, but that is a moment in which I realized that vocabulary and that having an advanced education and being involved in social movements was golden. That is possible in a democracy. That is not possible in many countries in the world. And we should never forget that, that we are practicing this in a democracy that says we have the right to do it. Now, whether we do it is one thing. Second, was I involved in elements of what some people would have perceived as armed struggle? If you were in the movements in the 60s, you were in some spectrum of that, whether I was going up to Ann Arbor and listening to the students who founded the you know, Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, was I involved in the bomb making that they and many versions did? I knew all about that. I certainly bought a shotgun at 18 and dared anybody to fuck with me. The shotgun is the story that I heard about. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's true. Um, I would have been involved in those practices of those moments. I certainly learned how to use several weapons. I've always believed in the Second Amendment. I practiced that. And I also traveled to countries that had had liberation struggles, knew of people who were directly involved in them at a young age and was in marvel of the fact that they were putting their life. I married to a man who's, you know, one of the founding members of a political party in Ethiopia, which took power against the communists. So I'm just saying that in that Malou, by the way, I, my sister-in-law was Barbara Ramsey. She married my Mm -hmm. brother at 18. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, the world is small of those people who 
So that blew my mind. Absolutely. Right. If you knew yeah, I could be a barber where like just that transfer of just being being held, that blew my mind. It's there. <laughs> but but I guess I'm I'm trying to say that Jimmy said to me, revolutionary ideas are not a blueprint for every struggle. That you have to learn to struggle where you are. And if my R is in small rural time Iowa, then it made sense three weeks ago that I trained all the teachers in elementary school, in junior high school, in high school, every teacher, every staff, every principal, diversity, equity, and inclusion, that I trained them so that they would be ready for the school board meeting in which 130 people in this community came and challenged this work and said they don't want their kids learning that kind of stuff. So they were armed to fight that internal battle in this community, taught by a Black woman. What I'm saying is having been riched like that by Jimmy and Grace and Audrey and Gloria Anzaldua and Sherry Moraga and all of these people who said little Keisho, they used to call me little Keisho. I don't know why the fuck that was, but <laughs> I don't even know what that means. But 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 they they knew that I needed to be invested in and they they gave me these hits. They planted these seeds and I've used them. I've lived long enough to use them. And that's what I would hope that my students, 6,800 students I've taught in 43 years, I hope that you use them, that those buttons get pushed in you at the right time. And I can't tell you what those buttons are, but you can live to tell what those buttons are. And if my persona in any way where even when it's fictitious and probably pretty damn exaggerated, if it got you to do something then it was worth it. And I think that's where Huey P. Newton's persona, I mean, you know, he wasn't in the South with a, a black beret and a and a black shirt organizing any damn thing. <laughs> he was a, you know, very clean cut black guy in the South doing that organizing in the early in the 60s. So again, we know that we all change over time. And when you're my age, you will change to whatever is appropriate. But make no mistake about it, that life of service is a life of telling the truth and doing the next right thing and mentoring other people. You're not going to be able to get away without doing that because you need it for yourself. You need it for yourself too. Is there anything else you want to make sure we include in this before we, uh, before we wrap up? Yes. I want to say something about love. It's not a, it's not a word <clears throat> that was used in movements very much, but it was always implied. And now that I've become a grandmother and I have six grandchildren and I get to love young people without having to put on their diapers and all that shit, they get to go (laughs) home to their parents. I'm being reminded of the fact that I get to love because I can. I get to love because I can. And you young people have taught me in movements and your courageousness, you're showing your love because you can. And I think we have to constantly remind people that we're doing so much of this because we can love. You know, you don't one day get to do that because of some preconditions. (laughs) You do it because you can. I hope when someone's writing about me that they are writing about the ways in which they saw me love 
I didn't always know that I could do that. Growing up in the violence and the ways in which I raged for years, I didn't think love was down there. But as I healed, love was down there. So it is a big motivation to why we're involved in trying to be on this right side of humanity. It certainly is mine. And so I love you for letting me have my words heard somewhere down the line in this modality. I'm certainly going to write, but I think this is equally as important. So thank you all for even including me in this in, in these talks on mentorship, because I'm my story is mine. Thank you. Yeah, mm. you're so welcome, and thank you, and thank you. and I love you. Yeah, we we love you so much. Just just hearing that, it, it it made me think of one moment that was really special to me. Of just full circle, Our, my organization, Let's Breathe Collective. We have a, a space that we're really proud of called Breathing Room here on the yes. side. And so, about two summers ago, there was um, a dinner with Marissa Alexander who was freed through a lot of organizing work. She was one of the, yes. like, the survived and punished, um, for folks who are familiar with the, the trajectory of women facing domestic violence being the ones who would then experience more violence through incarceration. Um, so she was there giving this beautiful talk, and another Grinnellian Chicagoan student of yours, mentee of yours, Christian Snow, uh, who has been the executive director of Asada's Daughters and part of our, our, our uh, ecosystem, she brought your daughter to our space and we were able to feed your daughter and I was able to give her love and say, whatever you need, this space would not exist without your mother. Um, and so just like oh. having that moment of love and family and seeing snow and, and to, for your daughter to be in this movement space that you planted the seeds of being able to grow. Uh, it just felt like one of those moments of right now of, of love actually being the central currency and fuel and like apparatus of what these liberation movements are about. So I love you and your family and your mentors and the, the legacy and lineage you come from. <laughs> I, I, I claim them as my own, even though many Good. of them were not alive <laughs> when I was born. <laughs> um, but, but thank you. Thank you so much. There, there's no way, even though we tried in two hours, uh, there's no way for us to fully express the gratitude and the impact. Uh, but, but I would try to live it in, in that love and doing the, night, the next right loving thing. Thank you. Mm. I love y'all. Love you too, uh, and we'll be we'll be back on the line, uh, continuing to talk. What, about what do, do I stop this thing now? Yeah, you can stop it now. Oh um, boy! Wow. We'll, we'll talk. We'll talk to you soon. Much love to the people. Peace. Levitate, 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 levitate.